Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Once again, I say to you, Happy New Year. Okay, let's do that a little bit better. We're going to do a little call and response thing. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, there it is. There it is. This exciting time. And um, it's a, a moment in which the, these l- lyrics that we sing and these, these meditations about God's faithfulness um, and his sovereignty is so important. And I think some of you may have been still traveling back from home if you were traveling or visiting family. And so you may not have seen a lot of what's happened over the last really 36 hours in terms of international affairs. But there was a uh, U.S. military strike in Iraq that um, killed a uh, military official in Iran that was widely known as a terrorist. And yet and so there was this moment that there have been rising tensions in the region that have just escalated um, into a sense where that has really put the world in a lot of ways in alarm. And we're going to talk more about that and pray, have an opportunity to pray about that later on. But the reason why I bring it up is because oftentimes this is a time period that we live in where there is such great anxieties and fears in the world that we live in. And in fact, um, some of you may have woken Wake, uh, woken up to see WW3 trending on Twitter on Saturday. Hashtag talking about World, world War III. And, you know, as usual, Twitter, people try to meet a serious issue with some comedic, you know, sides and humor and things. But the anxiety, the, the, the sense of fear about a draft was so large, like a, a universal draft, that it actually crashed the selective services of the United States government's website. Like, that's how much people between the ages of 18 and 25 were starting to wonder, yo, am I going to get drafted? And it's an indication of, once again, of just a lot of this stress and anxiety that many people have in these times that we live in. In fact, the American Psychological Association has referred to millennials, and um, Gen Z is still continuing in that tradition, as the most stressed generation of all the generations that uh, they study. Um, here are some numbers that they use to look at that, that up to 17% of people are depressed, 14% deal with anxiety. Uh, millennials are, seek psychotherapy more often than other members of Generation X or earlier generations. And of course, that's something that is good that folks are seeking help. But the two issues that keep coming up oftentimes in, in conversations with Gen Zers or, um, is a near constant online engagement and a sense of a, ever sense of a closing window to make, take much needed action in their lives, right? So almost a sense of like life is passing me by with each month and each year. And the two of those things are very much related because if I scroll and I stay online and continue to look through, you know, you get that kind of insta uh, envy, Y'all know that instant envy I'm talking about where like you see people living their best life, a very filtered and framed best life. But nonetheless, people see that um, and, and it can cause a lot of a sense of comparison and a lot of a really heavy sense of like, yo, what am I missing out on? But I think in this case that we just saw in terms of the political landscape, it's the 24 hour, 24-7 news 
that we just get access to. So all of a sudden, something that happens halfway around the world that would have taken probably a day or two days to really filter in, we learn of instantly all the time. So for many people, their resolution might have been in 2020 to just have like less stress. But for others, they go, you know what, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to ask you by a show of hands to incriminate yourself so that we can look and see. But others typically have New Year's resolutions of, you know, uh, working out, having a healthier lifestyle, um, whatever it is. And so the question becomes, well, what resolution will help us to endure in 2020? Right. In, in a world where it's as complicated and for many people as anxiety laden as the one that we live in now. What is it? Was it, you know, a resolution to work out or have prosperity or what it is? And here's the key thing, the key ingredient that I think a lot of the researchers and analysts are missing. And many of us can miss it as well. We don't need resolutions. We need revelation. We don't need resolutions. We need revelation. The word revelation, uh, a, a word that we come to know that's really what this means in Greek is apocalypse. Apocalypse. You know, we think of when we think of apocalypse now or apocalyptic literature, it oftentimes gives us these, you know, themes of, of, of gloom and dread, these kind of dystopian futures that we see so often in movies or TV shows. But, often, but really, this whole genre of literature from, you know, Revelation, which is literally the first word in the Greek um, in Revelation, is apocalypse. And it, it means a revelation of what's to come. And in the scriptures, this, this revelation, when God has allowed his people to peer back, to pull back the curtain of time and to see that which is to come, it oftentimes has had aspects of judgment involved with it. But the interesting thing, anybody here ever grow up or heard Christians say like, yo, don't read Revelation because it's scary. Anybody ever, you know what I mean? <laughs> some people, you know, I remember hearing that, like, there was this, like, almost this book in the Bible that you didn't want to open because some bad stuff might happen if you do. And here's the irony. To the original readers of the book, it was one of, of great joy and comfort to read these books, not of dread. The apocalyptic literature was not one that was, some, that was to invoke a sense of fear, but a, a sense of comfort and joy. Why? Because for them who were in these various places of stress and anxiety, similar to where we are now, a, a, a rolled back vision of what was to come and how God was going to ultimately deal with those things was actually a point of peace and encouragement. And I believe that that can still be the case for us today. And so we're going to actually, you know, we've been going through this journey through the book of Daniel for the last, you know, uh, several uh, weeks, and we took a little break for Christmas and now we're back to it. And the funny thing, this is just where it lined up. So the Lord sovereignly had us to deal with this because Daniel has two basic sections. The first six chapters that we've looked at are these stories of Daniel and his friends that, uh, and what it looks like for them to deal with the challenge of being exiles in a world in which people are, have left God out. In a world in which they, they, as the people of Israel, are in a different place or a different time, where, and, and they have to deal with what it looks like for them to try to live godly in this age. 
And then in the second half of the book, from chapter 7, which we're going to look at today till 12, the shift change. there's this radical, it's really another genre of literature. And it's one that deals with this aspect of these visions that Daniel receives and that helps him and others get a sense of perspective. And here's the reason why. In Proverbs 29:18, it says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Do you see that? Where there is no sense of a pr- prophetic vision. Some of y'all, my uh, King James versions might see the people perish, right? But the idea is if I don't have a vision, a perspective, an unveiling, a revelation of that which God is trying to say to us in this time, then I lose heart, I lose discipline, I give up, and I keep on moving. But if I do have that sense of vision, then I will actually be blessed and actually keep the law that he has revealed to me. And see it as a good thing. Is it all right for us to get into some revelation here today? So we meet and find ourselves in this book of Daniel in chapter 7, verse 1. And it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So it gets right here to the point, and we can already see that something has happened chronologically in the book because when we last left off, you know, in chapter 5, it was the last day, literally, of Belshazzar's reign, and this uh, Medo-Persian empire came and took over. And then in chapter 6, you see him dealing with that empire. So in chapter 7, it goes backwards in order to take you forward into what is about to take place and what we're about to see. Now, what we're going to look at, when we get into this genre of apocalyptic literature and visions, one thing that's very important is that there's a lot of symbolism involved, a lot of uh, imagery involved, and that, that it takes some time to kind of break down. So you have to bear with us for a second. This is, you know, because it's going to take a little bit to build out what Daniel is doing. Are y'all there with me? All right. So. We see he sees this vision and then it goes and explains the vision that Daniel actually observes and and sees. It says, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were sitting up, were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So again, he's describing this vision, and one thing we immediately see is it was by night, and he says, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, there's a couple key things to just point out that already we're seeing this vision conjure up and give us a picture of things. One, it happens at night, right, which is this is ominous foreboding sense. Secondly, it says the four winds. When we say the four winds of heaven, what's that? North, south, east, and west. It's saying that there's this holistic, there's this, this windstorm, there's this tornado that's taking place, and that it's stirring up the great sea. Now, to a lot of ancient Near Eastern people, especially in Israel, that the sea was a, it was a source of great danger and, and chaos, right? You think of um, Jonah, right, who, who uh, you know, got, had to, there was a big storm in the boat and then they threw him overboard. Or, or even Jesus and the disciples where there, there was this sense of when the storms were raging. It was a major calamity for them, the storms. And it says out of that, these four great beasts of the sea, and they were different from one another. The first beast, it says, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then he talks about how those wings were torn off. 
The second, it says, and behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, it was told, arise, devour much flesh. And it had three bones in its mouth. The third, it says, and this, after this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And so with each of these visions, it's starting to get kind of stranger and stranger. Okay, now we're talking about a four-headed beast. Where are we going with this, Daniel? Like with wings, like a four-headed leopard, like, whoa. And then the last one, no, that's not it. Wait, there's more. (laughs) And and seven, seven, see, this is why people don't read this. It's like, (laughs) after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts before it. And it had 10 horns. Now, by the time we get to this one, Daniel don't even have words to be like, yo, it was kind of like a, um, like a leopard or like, he's like, yo, I don't even know what to describe it. Iron teeth, horns, like, uh, Now, the thing about the horns that's important to note, and we see this throughout uh, Old Testament uh, literature, is that the horn was symbolic of strength. If you've ever seen a bull or like a bull fight, you'll see why, right? It was symbolic of strength. Horns, the sense of like when you had this big animal and then, you know, that's what they would use to lift each other up or to fight. And so horn was symbolic of strength. And so he's seeing this aspect of strength. So for it to have 10 horns was to say that, oh, this is something that's terrifying and terrible, and its teeth, not only, now we're getting out of the realm of nature. It's like iron teeth, like metal, which is speaking to its sense of technology and all this. So in any case, so Daniel sees this, and look at his reaction. It says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, in this vision and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Now, we know from greater context, especially throughout the rest of Daniel, where there's a lot of interaction with angels that when he says that, you know, he turned to the person next to him, he was probably talking about the angel Gabriel who, or Michael who makes several appearances throughout the rest of this book. And he has like, yo, you're going to have to help me. What am I looking at right now? What am I actually seeing? Because I am shook right now. And the explanation that is given that these four beasts represent four kings or four kingdoms of the earth. Now, why would this matter? Why would this be so significant? Well, we have to remember that the people of Israel at this point are exiles in captivity. That means that they have been taken, they have been conquered, the temple has been destroyed, they have been scattered and gathered into Babylon essentially as slaves. The people who were told that they were going to have this promised land and that they were going to be this beacon of light and hope for the rest of the world now find themselves oppressed. Now, much of it, as, we, as Daniel will also say, it had to do with their own rebelliousness and sin and their judgment for it. But nevertheless, these, they, they, this is where they find themselves. And he's like, and now Belshazzar, which is the end of the Babylonian empire, is about to happen. And it's like, how long is this going to happen and what's going to take place? 
Where's the hope? And some of you are like, man, this don't sound very hopeful. Four bees coming out, one more worse than the other. How is this hopeful? But here's what we later learn in chapter 8 and the rest. What these kingdoms symbolize. You see, the one that was the lion and the wings, that was Babylon. We know this for several reasons. One, because the actual symbol of Babylon was a lion. But if you further on, and remember when Nebuchadnezzar got turned into like this beast-like thing we looked at before, and, 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 it, and he you know, looked like his hair was like wings and feathers of, of feathers of an animal, and it talks about that in Scripture. So he's saying that first kingdom you've already seen before this is Babylon. The second one, that bear that is so devouring things, and it talks about it one side being heavier than the other or lopsided, that was because the Medo-Persian Empire was this combined empire. And they were known for their ferocity in battle. This we know very clearly. The next two, there's some debate about scholars about which ones they are. But I think the clearest that we can see is that we understand that the bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, then the empire that came next was Greece. And the interesting thing about Greece, why the leopard, which is obviously fast, and then the wings show even more speed. Well, Alexander the Great conquered the world in 10 years by the time he was 32 years old. Very fast. In fact, it is said that once he conquered the known world, he began to weep because there were no more lands to conquer. And of course, that contained and that involved the people of Israel. Well, what about this one that was so ferocious with the iron teeth and the, that Daniel couldn't even describe? Well, many scholars believe, and, and I, I'm persuaded by this as well, that this is actually talking about the Roman Empire which was unique and distinct from all the ones that came before it, both in its length of time and in its scope. There's still this thing called the Pax Romana. If you've been a history major, remember like this sense of like their reign was so sufficient and so long that it actually created a sense of uh, relative peace and stability. Now, it was still you had to pay your tribute to Rome and you had to worship the Roman Caesar as king and God even if you wanted to be a part of that. But nevertheless, there was a sense of peace involved. And so they're seeing this one after another, but that peace came at this edge of violence. Now, one last thing and I'll say, and, and, and part of the reason why we're doing this series and going through book after book, and stay with me there because there's payoff at the end, trust me. I know this is like very dense. is because we want to help everyone, all of us get a biblical perspective on the world and understanding the biblical story so then we can go back and look at our present day and see it through the lens of Scripture. So it's hard. It's kind of like, you know, some training, but it's worthy. Y'all with me? So one other thing that is valuable to know, and this just helps you decipher what's happening in this book, because there's an amazing thing that's happening in the book of Daniel. In chapter two, we saw that Daniel had a, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disturbed him. That was very disturbing. It was a dream of a statue, right, that had gold and silver and bronze and stone and clay. And he was like, I don't know what this means. It's very terrifying because this rock comes in to destroys it. And what does this actually mean? And Daniel comes and explains the dream and says, the gold is the kingdom of Babylon. That's you. And then the other ones are successive kingdoms. And so the interesting thing is chapter two gives you a dream, the, the dream of what's happening in the kingdoms to come through the perspective of the king. And he sees it as a statue. That's something to celebrate. Chapter seven gives you the same picture of the kingdoms to come. But it's now through the perspective of the person being oppressed. And it's a savage beast. The point here is this. 
that God is trying to observe and to help us to see is that true vision reveals human sinfulness. See, 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 from the perspective of the powerful, their domination and their power and their, and their violence looks like a good thing to them. But from the perspective of those who suffer from it, it is like, yo, this is evil and destructive. And so what Daniel, what God is showing us through Daniel is that, look, all of the, the sense that the, the things that the world celebrates are not in my agenda of what I see as important and valuable. In fact, I see it as grotesque. But just in case we, we, we you know, so we, yeah, that's talking about corporate greed. That's talking about injustice in the criminal justice system. That's talking about just all of those things that we see on a macro level and say, yo, this is what systemic evil looks like. And God is saying, yo, it is grotesque. It is distortion of reality. But lest we throw stones at, through a glass house, this also shows that this human sinfulness. See, this is the problem that I have sometimes with people when they're always talking about the system and the man. Because the system is made up of individuals who are sinful, and so therefore they create an individual, a selfish, sinful system. But that would also, history tells us that all it takes is for another group of people to get the same type of power, to do the same type of things. And so just because in the story that we happen to be experiencing in and the one that we have to speak prophetically to, it looks like a certain thing, doesn't mean that just in this part of the world, let me just try to make it plain, right? So this is an issue when people, you know, so all right, I'm all for critiquing Eurocentrism and the history of white supremacy in our country, in our world. Absolutely, that needs to be done. But I have to like, tell people to pump their brakes before they want to start talking about the innate sinfulness and evil of white people, as if there's some separate group of people that you don't have to look at the world and say, yo, the history, regardless if you're looking at Asia, Africa, you know, Latin America, wherever, is a history that is surrounded and entrenched in the human desire for power at the expense of other people. And that is important to note because guess what? When you start looking at the issues of our individual lives, whether that is cheating on your taxes or cheating on your girlfriend, it's the same sinfulness that is being emerged and that needs to deal with. Now, not to the same consequences and not to the same ramifications that we see from a power standpoint, but this is what I'm saying, is that the same, and we'll see this in the next chapter. We don't got time to get into it. And when Daniel's response to this is repentance and prayer. Because this is, it's an internal issue of the heart. And guess what? We all got in Romans chapter three, Paul says that there is no one righteous. There's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks after God, and that we all have to come the same way. That's why we don't earn it and we can't deserve it, because all of us are broken and falling short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And we have to keep that in mind even as we look to fight the system, which we absolutely have to do. But I digress. That was not in my notes. Verse 9. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and clothing was white as snow. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, the wheels were burning fire, and the books were open. So now, all of a sudden, there's a scene change in in Daniel's vision. And then it goes on to say, I looked then because of the sound of the great words from that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and the body destroyed the, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. 
Ooh, if I could just preach this thing. We go back to the ancient of days. Go back to that verse. So the key thing is that, so you go from this thing where these beasts emerge one after another, these kingdoms emerge, and it's just, and he's terrified. And then the next thing he sees is this scene of a courtroom. And then in this figure, this person, it says, took his seat. There's no rushing going on. There's no panic. And the seat was a sign of authority and power. He's like, I'm sitting here chilling in the midst of these beasts. And, it's, and then it describes clothing is white as snow, which de- depicts the holiness and the purity of the one of the judge. And it says his hair was like pure wool. Now, a lot of, a lot of times our brothers and sisters be like, you know, see, this is evidence of the fact that, you know, the hair was nappy. And I'm like, I, I see what you're trying to do there. The, the emphasis here is on the color of wool, not on the texture. Not that I disagree that it could be that texture, but that's not where this is going. The sidebar. Some of y'all was waiting for that. Yeah, go ahead. Talk about the wool. (laughs) And it says, his throne was fiery flames and his wheels were burning fire and the books were open. The fire indicating the purity and the judgment of God, right? Because what this fire does, it it tests the purity and removes the impurity of things. Right. When jewelry that we have, like gold doesn't come out the ground looking shiny. It has to be taken through a fiery furnace in order to be purified. And it's seeing the purity. And it says books were opened up and the books are indications of everything that has been said and done by everybody in the world. Everybody. (laughs) And if we go to the next, you know, the next passage there. So then it says that then he looked and saw the great words of the horn. So the horn is talking trash, one of the horns, against God, and he's still speaking. And then all the next thing you know is the Ancient of Days just murks the beast, like just, just takes out the ferocious beast. And it says the body was destroyed and given over to be burned. And the rest of the, now this last part, this is where the rubber hits the road for us. Because what, Paul, what, what Daniel was saying there is that the power and the domain is not something that you need to be afraid of, of these kingdoms and this, uh, you know, these, this evil rule. However, their presence is still going to linger. This is that dynamic that we talk about of being uh, already fulfilled, but not yet fully realized. In other words, there's a sense in which you don't have to be afraid, Daniel, because ultimately the ancient of days is in control. And the reason why that's the description that's used to describe God is, look, ancient, meaning old, older than days versus these kingdoms that are coming out of the water one by one that have a start date and they have an expiration date. But the ancient of days has neither. And that's why he's able to judge them all. Do you see how this is good news to a people who are suffering? So a people who are confused, who are anxious, this is very important for them to know. So true vision reveals judgment and deliverance is coming at the appointed time. That's what is being revealed here. That true vision realizes that I don't have to fret about the, the, the realities of the evil that I see around me or the uncertainties of the wars that I see or the rumors of wars that I see because I recognize that True vision tells me that judgment and deliverance is coming at the appointed time. See, part of the reason, could it be that some of the reasons why people are afraid of reading through the book of Revelation and it's it's in places like Daniel where there's judgment is because we've so aligned with the empire that we see their decline as our decline. 
but the reality is if I don't identify myself with that seat of power, then I can realize and go, I'm glad for the judgment because now that means that those who are under the boot of that are free from that judgment. And again, if I see myself as recognizing that though I don't earn it nor I deserve it, that God has actually redeemed me, then I don't have to be afraid of his judgment and his fiery wrath because guess what? Jesus already paid for that, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So how can we find hope in these times? How can we find hope? Well, the next verse is the one that kind of helps clarify that. So as he sees this vision of the ancient of days, but the vision isn't over. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented to him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This verse in Daniel is quoted more than any other in the New Testament. This, this, this picture, now there's a couple things that we get symbolic of. We go back to verse 13, because he sees in the vision, he sees... <laughs> He sees someone that looks like a human riding on a cloud like he's the silver surfer on a surfboard. And it's like, what? What's going on there? Now, part of the, 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 see, the depth of the significance of that vision, again, remember, where did the beast come out of? They came out of the sea, place of chaos and disorder and whatnot. But also it's underneath. Heaven is over authority is on top of the sea. And so heaven was pictured as the sovereignty and the domain of God himself. So he's saying, okay, first of all, this person is riding on a cloud. Now, if we go through the Psalms, like Psalm 89, we see that God is ultimately usually the one that's seen riding on a cloud, not a human being. But then he says, like a son of man. So there's something that's like, yo, this is kind of human, but I'm not sure exactly what's going on. And then we see in the next verse that look at to what he says about the son of man. To him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples should serve him and that he will have everlasting dominion. Wait a minute. That sounds mighty theologically like deity to me. Like who, who's getting dominion and glory and kingdom in the scriptures? God himself. So there's something divine about this son of man. There's something unique and special. And then look, and it says his kingdom shall not pass away. There's, it will never be destroyed. And unlike these kings that rise and they fall, they rise and they fall, they rise and they fall. And guess what? The United States of America is not in the Bible, y'all. Like that ain't, that like there's no, like we might be a kingdom that rise and fall. Like there's just, like that's just what it, but there's another king whose kingdom it says shall not pass away. But who is, and so it's like, well, what's this son of man and what's going on? And so throughout time, and this is written about 500, 600 BC, where this is taking place, people are trying to discover and discern that. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of the Roman Empire, in the midst of the iron teeth beast with the, with the claws and the ferociousness, right? Here comes one who says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Do you know that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other name? Jesus is that Son of Man. Somebody ought to shout about that because he gave us clarity about what Daniel was talking about centuries before. And look at what Jesus says about himself. He says, and everyone who has left, this is, the, this is why this is so important. 
houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, I know. I, I know I've seen every hard decision that you had to make. Every relationship that you've had to cut off. Every financial decision that didn't work out in your favor because you chose integrity over that which everyone around you tried to do. Every decision that you made that cost you a job, every decision that even strained relationships, because for some people, following Jesus means saying goodbye to your family in different ways, saying goodbye to your friends, saying goodbye to those different things. So every cheek that you turned the other side when somebody did something wrong to you and you, and you, he's like, I saw every, which is why in Revelation he says, I will wipe away every tear. That's not hyperbole. That's saying that I've seen every single painful thing that's happened to you, and I, it's going to be redeemed. But not only redeemed, you'll get it back a hundredfold in the kingdom. One last piece on this, lest we think this is some pie in the sky thing that's just like, yo, just trust God on credit. There's a reality that this is what we experience already, because guess when eternal life starts? The moment that we have relationship with Jesus Christ himself. And so for many of us, we've already seen the fulfillment of this passage because we see it right here in this room, that there are friends that we have all over the world, people that I know I can go anywhere in the world, and as long as there's a church and there's some believers, I can walk in, worship with them, and be like, yo, what's good, right? And feel koinonia fellowship with them regardless of where I go. And that is what we get a foretaste of in the kingdom. But whatever that is now, it's just an appetizer for the main course that's to come. And that's what should encourage us. That vision, that perspective, as long as we keep our eye on that, can sustain us even through the tough times. True vision reveals Jesus as our real hope. Well, what is our role? What, what, what's our part to play in this vision? Right? Because I'm saying, like, you know, we say we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. Jesus is the center of it. And all of that is true. But we do have a part to play. Remember those tens of thousands that it saw around the throne? They weren't just celebrating, but there was also work for them to do. Part of the judgment and deliverance that is supposed to happen in the world is supposed to come through his hands and feet. There's a reason why we're called the body of Christ, the ones through which his activity emerges. I recently came upon a story that just was so inspiring to me about one such situation, especially in the, in the midst of seeming just complete um, hopelessness. It's about a woman named Rebecca who was born a racial, uh, biracial slave. Uh, there's a book written about her, so she's likely the product of rape herself. And uh, she was born in the Caribbean in Antigua. And uh, then, as, as if it wasn't bad enough to be born in a sense of enslavement, she was later kidnapped and sent to St. Thomas by her kidnappers. So she finds herself in another place, and um, in that space comes to faith in Christ at a very young age. Experiences getting her freedom at the age of 12. People saw something so unique and distinct about her that they wanted to see what would happen with her life. And she began to preach the gospel, but her mission field were to those, even though she had received and experienced her own freedom, she wanted to go back to those who hadn't yet. And so she began to preach the gospel of liberation to slaves 
in St. Thomas. Well, this was the first time that they'd actually been an effective ministry to Africans in um, the Caribbean. And so there were some Moravian, some German missionaries who, because of language barriers, cultural barriers, were not making any progress. So then they say, hey, well, how about we work together? So she begins to get this kind of financial support to be able to do this as an itinerant missionary um, throughout the Caribbean. I'm talking, this is 1720, 1730. So this is long, like right in the middle. So slavery wouldn't be outlawed in America for another 100 and almost 50 years. And yet she's going around preaching the gospel. People are coming to her, getting counseling, getting perspective, getting hope. And all of a sudden, she sees this platform grow to the point where they are, she is now referred to as the mother of modern missions. Yeah. She ended up going to Ghana. Peep that for a second. Ghana was usually the doorway where people left from freedom through the Middle Passage endured such a hardship in order to get to the new world. She goes back to Ghana, literally in a crowd near where the um, slave castles and, and dungeons were, to preach the gospel. She ended up uh, starting a school, a small school to educate people who were there. And she ended up dying there, you know, in the age in, the, in like her 60s. And you think, okay, that's pretty much the end of the story. History largely forgot about her. Until in the 1950s when uh, Kwame Nkrumah and others began to lobby for freedom and they actually attributed their, the education that she started in her school in the 1700s as what was the building blocks for their liberation in 1950s. That's the legacy and that's the impact that one person can make. And look at what Rebecca Proton said. She said, the, the dear savior the dear Savior suffers with you at your beside and strengthens the faith by which you have worked in the world. He said, look, do you see that? Do you see the sense of the theology of proximity that she's talking about? She's like, I'm not talking about something that's out there, that's over there. Like, I'm talking about someone who's beside you, with you in your suffering. And that is the perspective that allowed her to experience and go through her suffering. So true vision points toward perseverance. Some of y'all didn't get that. I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to make it plain a different way. Y'all ain't, ain't feeling me. So there's this movie, Facing the Giant. Some of y'all may have seen it. And there's a scene in it where, uh, so in Facing the Giants, as you could express by the name, the, uh, the people are facing hard obstacles, right? Like that concept that the giants comes from, you know, and uh, when the people of Israel was going to the promised land, but they saw these people that were as big as giants. And so they were like, we can't do it. And so they rebelled against God. They, they refused to go in because they thought that they could not win against these giants. And so there's a scene where the coach is, they're about to play a team that they've never beaten before. And one of the players asked, are, are they any good? Is Westview any good this year, coach? And then the star player on the team named Brock says, well, they're better than us. The coach hears this and he goes, oh, come here, Brock, come here. He says, I want you to do something. I want you to do a death crawl to the 50-yard line. Now, some of y'all know what a death crawl is. If you've ever had a trainer, they, you know, it's, recently as people start doing this thing, core, you got to work on your core. And like core exercises are like demonic in some way. Like, like they hurt you in places that you didn't even know that you could feel. Like it's just very painful stuff, right? But it's good for you, so they say. So he told him to do this death crawl. Now the death crawl is you have to kind of get on all fours, 
but you can't touch, you can't, your knees can't touch the floor and you gotta like crawl like this. But in football, you gotta do it with somebody on your back. <laughs> so he says, all right, I want you to do it. But this time he had only ever done it to the 20 yard line. He says, I want you to try to take it to the 50. He's like, the 50 coach with somebody on my back? He's like, just do it. But he said, I'm gonna blindfold you. So he blindfolds him. And then he gets somebody that he thinks is 140 pounds and he says, all right, put him on his back. And so Brock is there and he's like crawling and then the coach is just right next to him and he's saying, just, you know, come on, just give me your best. Just give me your best. And as he's crawling and at first Brock is using his regular speed, but then he's starting to slow down and he's saying, it's burning coach. And then the coach stoops down low. He says, come on, just give me your best. You got it in you. Give me a few more steps. Brock is moving and he's walking and he's going. And he's like, it's, it's, I can't, it hurts too much. It hurts. And he's just saying, give me your best. Just give me a few more steps. Give me a few more steps. And he's crawling across and finally says, give me one more step. Brock gets the step and collapses. He's like, that has to be the 50. That has to be. The coach takes his blindfold off. He says, you're in the end zone now, Brock. The point of prophecy isn't for us to be able to predict the day or the time. Jesus already said that we no man knows that. But it's to give us a vision, give us a perspective to say, I know it hurts. I know it's tough. I know what you're going through and the suffering that you're experiencing is tough. But just give me your best because I'm with you. And though you don't know the day or the hour, there's when, when Jesus is with you, you have more power and more ability in you than you could ever imagine. So whatever that means for you in 2020, whatever you're struggling with, whether that is a big giant that's systematic wide and empire wide and you're like someone that's like, when is this ever going to end? Or it might be in your own home, a struggle in your own when you look in the mirror, the anxiety that you struggle with on a day. What Daniel is reminding us is that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world that no matter what beast comes out of that sea, that the Ancient of Days sits down in judgment and says it has an expiration date. Be still and know that I am God. If you would stand with me, because we believe in the power of prayer here. And so what I'd like for us to do is just, if you could reach across the aisle and we wanna just sit and stand in solidarity with each other as we pray for our nation, as we pray for soldiers, as we pray for the world. Yeah, so you just spread out. You can just kind of, as we gather. And I just want you to think of whatever that giant is that you may be dealing with, whatever it is causing that sense of anxiety. It could be happening across the world. It could be happening right there in your own home. I want you to picture that beast coming out to sea and the Ancient of Days judging it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we hurt, God. It's hard. Life can oftentimes be confusing and painful. God, we look and we can be overwhelmed by the things that we see on our timelines, our news feeds, and around our lives. Lord, it seems like the beasts are devouring everything around us. But God, right now, we, by faith, see you as the Ancient of Days sitting in judgment over these things and speaking peace to the storm like you did back then in Galilee. 
offering judgment to those responsible for the pain of others and ultimately offering redemption to those of us who call on your name. Lord, we pray for our nation, which is often so divided on almost everything now. We pray even about for our military and troops that are being sent oftentimes in the battlefield and in harm's way. God, we pray that they would also look to the ancient of days, but we also pray for the entire world, God. Joshua asked the angel of the Lord, whose side on your own? And the angel said, I'm on the Lord's side. God, there are people who call out to you in Iraq. There are people who call out to you in Israel. There are people who call out to you in Iran. There are people who call out to you all over the world. And those who don't know you yet, God, you care about them all. We pray for every soul. But not just overseas. We also pray right here in our own city. God, there's over 60,000 homeless people here in this city. We see them. We pass by them. We see them on the subway. It can be overwhelming to try to figure out what to do. Lord, would you be with us? Would you help us to know what's the next step, God? But even for some of us, that giant is looking right at us in the mirror when we get up. We're still battling what the lies that somebody had told about us, told to us years ago. And just as the song we sang earlier said, there's no lie you won't tear down. No wall you won't bring down to bring us to you. God, as we enter into 2020, we pray that we would have faith that you slay the lions, that you slay the bears, that you slay the leopards, you slay every giant that steps in your path, God. Would you align us to your will? And sometimes that giant is even our own sin nature. God, we bring it to you as well. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But you gave yourself for it, God. And so by faith, we will rejoice and have the same comfort that those that Daniel wrote to. That gave him the faith to stand up in the midst of sin. Give us that power today. And as we stand here together, God, help each other. The person that's, I pray for the person to my left and to my right, God, that they would find the strength to endure this week. Help us to build fellowship in, in, in the body and realize we can't do it by ourselves and we need each other. We commit this to you and we give you the glory. We praise you already even though we don't even know what this year has to offer. We by faith declare it done. We by faith declare it finished because we know one day you're going to crack the sky riding on the cloud from the heavens and the Son of Man will be revealed upon all flesh and we will worship you and you will wipe away every tear and you will celebrate and you will embrace us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can return to your seat. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. 
If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.